Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And welcome to week 5 of a journey that has us as a faith family walking through the book of Colossians, or really a letter um, which lifts high the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. There, there's none like Him. There's no one we need besides Him. And so the reality is Paul is writing from a prison in Rome He's been arrested for his faith in Christ, for his message of Christ. And he is writing from Rome, encouraging the believers at the church at Colossus. And it has been said, I love this, it's been said that more helpful and practical truths came from Paul's chains than from his visit to heaven. So we have this picture where Paul visited heaven, but nothing was revealed in it. Yet, while Paul's in prison, a whole lot is revealed to us. So we, we get more blessing and more benefit from his chains than we do from that. So what Paul is doing is Paul is pointing them to Jesus. We said from week one, may nothing get in the way of us seeing Christ and may nothing get in the way of others seeing Christ through us. We don't want to block people from seeing who Christ is. And then Paul, as we saw last week, pointed them back to what they were before Christ they were alienated. They were separated from God. They were without hope in this world. And then he showed them, as we saw last week, what they were because of Christ. They were reconciled. They who were once enemies were now friends. They now enter into a relationship with God. And so the, the weight of our alienation, the weight of our separation um, from God can be summarized, as we saw last week, as us, the creation, Preferring creation to the creator, therefore we get stuck in the cul-de-sac of stupidity most of our lives, chasing things that do not satisfy us, have never satisfied us, and never have any hope of satisfying us, but we continue to pursue them anyway. So we acknowledged that last week, that all of us, without Christ, we stay in that cul-de-sac going around and around and around and around, um, hoping and believing and trusting that things that were never meant to satisfy us will somehow, some way, satisfy us. So Paul helps us remember how Christ has brought us out of that cul-de-sac of stupidity and has placed us on the narrow road. Yet, think about this. We're not on an independent journey trying to find our way um, to Christ. This isn't a solo project that we have um, been put on. You know, mo most people don't have the church in mind. But let me just tell you this. Jesus did. I, I love what Brother Frank just said. We, we forget sometimes what this is about. This isn't about us. It's about him. We're forgetful of who it is we're, we're meeting with together as a faith family. That we are indeed standing on holy ground because his presence with us. Last Thursday, in less than an hour, less than one hour, I met two different individuals. I was talking to them, and both of them, I could not believe it. They both said the same exact words. They said, well, we, we love God. We're, we're saved. We just don't go to church as much as we, we should, or I don't go to church as much as I should. Both of them said it, and I said, well, how much do you go to church? And they said, well, not, not as much as we should. I said, well, how much have you been to church in the last year? And they said, well, and I said, you don't have to answer. I, I know what you're what your answer is going to be, I said, here's the thing. Church might not be important to you, but it was important to Jesus. And so the point is for us to say, I know God, I know Jesus, I love him. I just, not you know, church, eh, we, under, we, we forget the fact that Jesus died to purchase the church. He died in order to build 
the church. And we forget that. So th therefore, we might minimize the church. It doesn't, um, might have a, not, not have a big place in our mind, but Jesus thought a lot of it. So what Paul does is Paul now takes the Colossian believers and us um, to a place inside community, a place that we seldom go, a place that sometimes we even ignore to our own peril. We, we ignore it. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to see a mystery unraveled right before our eyes. Two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus um, is the image of the invisible God, and Jesus is holding all of creation together. So the reason that we're not unraveling is because Jesus is holding us in place. But this morning, we're, we will be, maybe some of us are going to be reminded of this. Maybe there's some here today that you're going to see this for the first time. The mystery of all mysteries being unraveled right before us. And one of the most beautiful and glorious revelations that we will see in Scripture. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's Word. We're going to read Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29, and then we're going to unpack this picture of looking at this mystery being unraveled right um, in front of our eyes. So it says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So Paul's writing here, And in my flesh I am filling up, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I told, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now and we thank you for the mystery that was revealed to the Colossian church, was revealed to us, and not just a mystery revealed, a mystery, God, that we walk in as your children, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. God, help us, Lord, to understand today the reality of, of that amazing mystery revealed, Christ in us. God, help us to see the ramifications that has for our lives and the ramifications it has for our eternities. Lord, just speak to your people today. God, as Brother Frank just said earlier, God, help us to get it today. Help us to forget no more. Help us to, to remember, to see, God, the beauty of who you are and the beauty of why we are here today. God, just speak to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So when we think about the word mystery, you know, most of us, or for most of us, a mystery brings excitement. A mystery brings a sense of unknown expectation. A mystery represents a puzzle that we need to solve or a, a truth that we need to somehow find. You might read murder mysteries or you watch them on television and you look for clues trying to identify who did it. You know, who's the one who's responsible for this? Or if you remember far enough back in my childhood, we played the game Clue. And we would identify that the killer was Colonel Mustard and that he committed the crime in the ballroom with a candlestick. 
or maybe it was P Professor Plum and um, it was in the library with a knife or whatever else it might be. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you might not, but we, we like that picture. We often see ourselves as the, the key contributor to unraveling mysteries. We love being able to pick out who the killer's going to be before the show gets over. We just like that. I knew it was him. I, he just looked like he was a killer. I mean, we, we like trying to figure those things out. And when we speak of mysteries in the spiritual realm, we also sometimes, if we're not careful, we think of puzzles or we think of unsolvable kind of puzzles. Therefore, when someone asks us difficult questions about God, we are tempted just to shrug our shoulders and go, I don't know, it's a, it's a mystery. Or... Um, what we mean, I guess, by saying that is that God operates either in ways that we don't understand or we just say, I don't have a clue. <laughs> I don't have a clue. And let me just say this. I know when we speak about the picture of the Trinity, God has revealed to us a glimpse of this glorious truth of the Trinity. But ultimately, it's a mystery to us. It's not something we can wrap our minds around. I love, as Adrian Rogers used to say, um, define the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. Deny the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. So just think about that picture. It's a mystery. The incarnation of Christ, him being fully God and fully man. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. Yet, here in Colossians 1, when Paul speaks of mystery, when he speaks of this picture, he means something very different than what our minds um, tend to think about. Paul's not speaking about a puzzle that has to be solved. He's not speaking about... Um, something that's just impossible to understand. Paul is describing a mystery of truth that was previously hidden, but is now or has now been made known by God. So this is a picture of a mystery that God hid throughout a generation, throughout the ages, and now God was revealing this mystery. Think about this. The mysteries identified in Scripture, and we can see them all throughout the, the New Testament. You can read the Gospels and hear Jesus talk about mysteries. These mysteries identified in Scriptures are not discovered by the genius of man, but they're always revealed by the grace of God. So God is revealing these things to us. God isn't saying, I put clues out there and you're so smart you figured it out. That's not what God's saying. God's saying is, I, I hid this, and because you're stupid, I had to reveal it to you, but by my grace, I did it. And granted, I know some of you get upset when I say stupid from the pulpit, but the Bible says that we're stupid. Um, so just going with that, and I've experienced a lot of stupidity in my life from me. Therefore, I know this. If, um, if that offends you by any means, just know this. Sin makes us stupid. And in our stupidity of sin, we do stupid things. So um, moving on from that. So God has to make this known to us. So we get to the book of Colossians, and the mystery that Paul has in mind is this, the indwelling of Christ in us, which becomes to us the hope of glory. You know, we live in a world where people that we come in contact with every day have no hope. And the Bible's telling us that we don't just have a future hope, we have a present hope. And that's Christ in us. It's Christ in us is a present hope. So what I want to do this morning in the remaining time that we have is I, I want us to unpack three truths that radiate from the hope that you and I possess as children of God. If you're in here today and you're not a child of God, I pray that the hope that we have will be a hope that you desire and that you, you want. So the first is this, there is hope in 
the afflictions of Christ. There's hope in the afflictions of Christ. Listen to what Paul says in verse 24. It says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So we love that. Paul's rejoicing because he's suffering for the church. And then he says this, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And verse 24 has been called the most controversial verse in this whole letter. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe this morning that anything is lacking in the suffering of Christ? I mean, most of us in this room, you go, no. There's nothing lacking in the suffering of Christ. Nothing lacking in his affliction. But notice what the text says. Paul says, I am filling up, I'm finishing, I'm completing what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Does that phrase bother us? Should it bother us? Let me just tell you this much. There's a, a lot of false doctrine has been based on this verse. And I'm going to explain some of that to you in just a minute. But we've got to be careful about taking a verse that seems to run contrary to the rest of the Bible and interpreting that verse that way. We've got to be careful about that. In fact, I know if you do it really well, you become a television evangelist. But that's a whole other message for a whole other day. But we've got to be careful about that. Let me just tell you very clearly, the Bible gets to interpret the Bible. So the Bible itself gets to interpret the Bible. Or, as I say a lot, we must interpret one scripture in light of all scripture. You can't just take one scripture, pull it out, and make it mean what you want it to mean. So let me just quickly unpack why this verse is so controversial. So this verse, this very verse of Scripture, has been used to teach the doctrine of penance. Maybe some of you have heard this idea is that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was not enough. Therefore, because it wasn't enough, we need to punish ourselves for our sins. So if we're going to be forgiven by Christ, we must punish ourselves. You could read back through some dark pages in in church history to find people who cut themselves with stones and people who would walk over glass for a mile, somehow believing that their own sufferings were earning them forgiveness. And they would say, I'm filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And we would say, no, wrong, you're not. All you're doing is adding to your own afflictions. That's all you're doing. Then this verse has also been used to teach the false doctrine of purgatory. So the idea is that when someone dies who is not yet ready to meet their creator, they get a second chance. They go to some dark place. They, they suffer for their sins. And when they suffered enough to pay for their sins, God receives them into heaven. And let me just say this, whether it's penance or whether it's purgatory, they are both horrific, terrible, false, unbiblical doctrines. They're unbiblical. They're unbiblical. I sat down a few weeks ago with a person that says, show me the Bible where purgatory is taught. And I said, um, it's not. And, but, but I've always been taught that. Well, you've been taught wrong. So, sorry, you've been taught wrong. It's not there. And we have to understand um, this picture. Think about this. Either what Christ did on the cross was enough for our eternal salvation or it wasn't. And if it's not, or if it wasn't, we're in trouble because God hasn't lessened his standards. So think about this. If Christ's death on the cross was not enough to accomplish salvation forever for us, then all of us are in trouble because God's standards have not lessened. He still says, be perfect. We still mess up. 
So we're in trouble if that is the case. Thankfully, God's word teaches that when Christ died on the cross, his payment for our sin was enough. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it is finished. He didn't mean it's almost finished. It's sort of, kind of, almost there, finished. No, it's finished, period. He paid fully for our sins. In the book of Hebrews, it says he died once and for all. Let me just say this. Let me just, please hear this. If you have put your faith in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord, you don't have to suffer for your sins. Jesus has already suffered for your sins. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to suffer for our sins. He has suffered for them. Therefore, the cross cannot be insufficient, and it's not insufficient. So the question becomes, so what's Paul talking about? What does Paul mean when he says that we are filling up, or he is filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? And here's what Paul understood. While Christ's suffering provided the gospel, Christ's suffering itself did not preach the gospel. Just follow with me here, or think of it like this. Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross to accomplish our salvation. And then think for a second what we often think of or what we think we're going to get when we're saved. So we come to Christ, we're saved, and we think smooth sailing, no more difficulties, nothing bad will ever happen. That's what we think. That's what people tell us. That's what people tell us. If you want the best life you could possibly get now, pray this prayer. And let me just throw this out there. Be very, 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 very careful about ever believing someone, even a pastor, who will promise you your best life right now. Satan promised Adam and Eve their best life now. God always promises us the best life to come. So understand that. Best life is coming for us. But think about how we view Christianity and then think about the Apostle Paul who's sitting in prison in Rome awaiting death because of his stance for Christ. So here's the principle. Christ suffered to accomplish our salvation. We must be willing to suffer in order to spread salvation. So let me say it again. Christ suffered in order to accomplish our salvation. We must be willing to suffer in order to spread his salvation. In our afflictions, we can either see ourselves as a dartboard. This is how some people see themselves. I'm just a poor dartboard, and people just keep throwing darts at me, and it hurts, and poor old me as I sit here on the wall. We can either view our afflictions as a dartboard, poor old us, or we can view our lives as a pipeline that through us, even through our afflictions, is spreading the love and the glory of God to the world who so desperately needs to see his love and his mercy and his glory. Don't sit around and see yourself as a dartboard. See yourself as a pipeline that God can even use your afflictions. I love the Romanian pastor, Joseph Sohn, who faced all kinds of persecution um, that we could not even begin to wrap our heads around. He said it best. He said, Christ's cross was for propitiation to make us right before God. Our cross is for propagation. In other words, we take up our crosses because we want to show the world a Savior who died so that they might know his love. So the question we must ask is, will we embrace the cross of Christ so that they might enjoy the Christ of the cross? 
Will we embrace the cross of Christ so that they might enjoy the Christ of the cross? I know this might seem like bad news for us, but let me just say this. What, what promises do we have in the midst of the affliction, in the midst of the sufferings that we face? What promises do we have? And here's the promise. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. So the, the, there's hope in the afflictions of Christ. Secondly, and moving quickly, there is hope in the indwelling of Christ. There's hope in the indwelling of Christ. So Paul talks in verse 26 and 27 of this mystery hidden for the ages, now being revealed. And what is the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's a picture in the Old Testament that the Old Testament saints had of God that is completely different when you get to Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Let me just take you really quick on a, a journey uh, through the Old Testament and look at God's relationship with his people. So time and time again in the Old Testament, the truth that resounded was that God had shown his mercy, had shown his love, had shown his grace to his people. But ultimately, the truth of the Old Testament is or was that God was with his people. So the truth of the Old Testament, God was with his people. Just follow with me. Genesis 12 and 15 to Abraham, God says, I am with you. Genesis 26 to Isaac, I will be with you. Genesis 28 to Jacob, I am with you and will keep you. Genesis 39, four different times about Joseph, it says the Lord was with him. In the book of Exodus, Moses asked the question to God, how can I stand before Pharaoh? To which God says, I will be with you. Throughout Israel's journey, there remained a visible reminder that the Lord was with them, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They were reminded of God's presence with them every day of their lives. When Joshua assumed the leadership from Moses after Moses died, in Joshua 1, two different times, God promises to Joshua, I will be with you. In the book of Judges, God appears to a, a man named Gideon, cowardly Gideon, and promised to use him to fight and defeat the people of Midian. And the question becomes, how? And the answer is, God says, I will be with you. When we get to David, we see a man after God's own heart that knew what it was to walk in the presence of God. Then when David died and Solomon took over, God says to Solomon, just as I was with David, I will be with you. Through the prophets over and over again, to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, do not fear, for I am with you. This is the truth that penetrates all of the Old Testament. God dwelling with his people. God tabernacling with his people. God um, meeting with them at the temple. They had this continual picture of God with them. Then you get to the New Testament. So you get to the New Testament and Jesus comes on the scene and the word of God tells us that his name will be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So it sounds very similar, oddly similar. This is the picture. God would still be with them. God is with his people. Then you get to John 13 and something um, bad happens. Jesus comes to his disciples and says, I will be with you just a little while longer. And now all of a sudden the red flags begin to come up. Where are you going, Jesus? 
Why are you going to be with us just a little bit longer? What are you doing? Where are you going? Why are you leaving us? And the answer is, Jesus says, I'm leaving you because of what I have to do for you. I'm leaving you for what must be done for you. And so what we know is that Jesus died on the cross and he showed on the cross that not only is God with us, he showed that God is for us. So on the cross, God shows, Christ shows us that God is for us. Yet, don't stop here. Jesus didn't just die on the cross to forgive us. He died and rose again so that he may live in us. And from all of that, a mystery that had been kept hidden for the ages is now being revealed. At that exact time, God found great pleasure in making known the mystery to the church at Colossus, not just God with them, but Christ in you. One of the most astounding truths of all of the Bible, Christ in us. And let me just say this. Unfortunately, this is a truth that many Christians are trying to live apart from. Many Christians are completely frustrated in their Christian life because they're trying to do it on their own. They're trying to do it apart from Christ in them. They think the message of the gospel is me and Christ when I need him. So we go, okay, Jesus, I'm ready for you now. I've got myself in a mess. Jesus, take my hand and get me out of this mess. And Jesus is going, no, I, this whole picture of me and you doesn't do anything for me. Jesus is like, you're not Batman and I'm not Robin. No, um, me and you doesn't excite me at all. Me in you, now, now, now you got something. When you understand Christ's presence in you, when you understand that the Christian life on your own is impossible to live, in fact, this whole Christian life is designed that you and I cannot do it apart from Christ doing it again in us and through us. Listen, my testimony is filled with so many times of me trying to live the Christian life apart from Christ apart from Christ in me, in my own strength. And guess what happens? When that becomes you, you become a bitter, angry, um, ticked-off individual wondering why God just can't keep up with you. And the picture is God is going, what are you doing? What are you doing? This isn't about what you can accomplish. It's about what I've already accomplished and what I want to accomplish in you and through you. Just understand this. So the mystery is that Jesus Christ, the King of glory, is now in us. It's the foundation of our hope. It's the hope that leads us into the presence of God. So Christ living in us is assurance that we will share in the glory that's coming for us. But let me just say this very, very clearly. Let me say this. Christ is not simply the reason that we can hope for glory. Jesus Christ is the glory. Jesus Christ is the treasure. He is the end result of it all. Forgiveness of sins and justification and adoption and all the other blessings that we have of the gospel are good and are absolutely glorious. But their goodness and their glory never take us beyond Christ. Never take, you will never find any Bible doctrine that will ever take you beyond Christ. They all, all will take you to Christ. He is the fulfillment of them all. I love what John Piper said, and we've said this before, we've used this before, but he says this, if you could have heaven with no sickness, 
with all the friends you've ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with this heaven if Christ wasn't there? And the reality is this is the heaven that mankind has made for themselves apart from Christ. And here's what we know. Any place apart from Christ is not heaven. It's an eternal hell. So the picture is our hope is Christ. He is our exceedingly great reward. And he lives in us now. Which leads us to the last picture. So not only is there hope in the dwelling Christ, the last picture is there is hope in the ministry of Christ. There's hope in the ministry of Christ. And just think about this. How would you define ministry? And part of this, this is Paul kind of, uh, laying out his ministry, but how would we define ministry? How would you define ministry? Some of you would define ministry as something that pastors should be doing always, meaning that pastors are the ones that do the ministry, and you're the ones that are supposed to reap from the pastor doing the ministry. And if somehow, some way, me as your pastor, I can't get the job done, then I need to move on, and somebody else needs to come in here that will serve you better. So that's somehow what some people think of ministry. Others define ministry as um, leading and participating in a ministry within a church. Others may be volunteering and meeting needs outside the church. Maybe others' ministry is giving up a week of paid vacation in order to go on a mission trip to a foreign country. Perhaps your definition of ministry is a specific role, whether it be um, your place in, in the choir or your place in the children's ministry or your place in the youth ministry or your place as a deacon or your place as a ministry leader or your place um, within our Sunday school. Um, all of those things, but just think about this. None of those definitions, without a doubt, should be discarded. None of them should be. They're all beautiful definitions of biblical ministry. All of them are. But let me say this. I am also deeply persuaded and also deeply concerned that our definition of ministry is often too limited, meaning oftentimes we limit ministry to a select few and we exclude ourselves meaning everybody else should be ministering, and they should be ministering to me and meeting my needs, and I don't need to be doing anything. But let me just say this. Paul doesn't exclude you. In fact, Paul includes you. You are a minister. Now, maybe you're not doing the role of, minister, of a pastor, but you are a minister. And what is your role? Listen to what Paul says in verse 28. Your role, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. That we, it's the picture of the Great Commission, what we're called to do. It has been said, though, that if we were to look closely at most churches, we would have to rewrite verse 28 um, as follows. Him we mention occasionally, lest we offend someone or sound too religious. We seek to please and entertain everyone so that they might feel good about themselves and be reassured that all is well in the world. So this is the picture that if we were to really look at the churches, we would have to rewrite what Paul just said. Yet, Paul's not rewriting this and God's not rewriting this. We are called to proclaim Christ. We are called to warn people when they start walking outside of Christ. We are called to teach people what Christ has called us to obey. It's the great commission here that we see See happening. We're called to present people mature in Christ. And who does, who does Paul identify as the scope of ministry? Look, look at verse 28 three times. Warning everyone. Teaching everyone. That we may present 
Everyone. What's the scope of Paul's ministry? Everybody. Everyone is on Paul's list. All the truth of God is for all people. In case you try to push this off as just being Paul and his ministry, know that the same exact words would be, are used in Colossians 3.16, and there's no doubt that in that picture, Paul is talking about us. So the question for us is, who are we proclaiming Christ to? If you're not maturing in Christ, you will have no desire to see other people mature in Christ. And let's finish by looking at verse 29. Verse 29 says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Just think about this. How does Paul envision ministry? Simply put, Paul envisions ministry as it's really hard. Ministry is hard. Paul says it requires toil, it requires struggle. On one hand, there's our own fleshly desires, our own weaknesses that we have to deal with. On the other hand, there's the instinctive um, tendency towards laziness, while at the same time, the desire or temptation to quit. I don't know how many times and a Sunday will go really well and something will happen where the enemy will work on me and by Monday morning it's like, is it worth it? I just don't know. And you walk through these things and then you have the frustration, the discouragement, the disillusionment of trying to lead people who would rather, who would rather run to sin than run to Jesus. That's a discouraging thing. And then all the while having to deal with Satan, knowing that, listen, you're, you're important and Satan, you are on Satan's radar. But understand this, if Satan can get a pastor to fall, oh, the fruit of that. Think about the great fruit of that. If Satan can get a pastor to fall, that, his fruit will be great. Just think about this. There's a lot of cost associated with ministry, but according to the word of God, it is eternally worth it. God doesn't miss anything here, and God will reward abundantly there. We trust that. So we don't quit. We don't stop because of, I love how Paul ends, because of his energy that he powerfully works within me. So God's work doesn't undermine our work. God's work fuels our work. God is not saying, I work and you do nothing. God is saying, I work in you so that you may work and your work is guaranteed because of my work in you. I love the words of Spurgeon who says, There will never be any mighty work come from us unless there first be a mighty work in us. There better be a work in you before there will ever be a work through you. So if the whole point of this mystery is to show us that Christ is in us, here's the question. How do you know if Christ is working in you? How do you know? Let me just end. I know we're a little over. Let me just end. I'm going to show you one more thing on the screen. And this, is, this is not an exhaustive picture, and I wish you could see that, but I kind of messed that one up. This is not an exhaustive picture of what it looks like, but here's how you know if Christ is in you. If when you are reviled, you bless instead of curse. If when you are persecuted, you endure. If when you are afflicted, you're not crushed. When you're perplexed, you do not yield to despair. When you're struck down, you are not destroyed. If when you are sorrowful, you still rejoice. And when you are lifted up, you are still humbled. If you find yourself responding and thinking as Jesus would. If you find yourself acting and choosing things contrary to every fleshly and sinful impulse, you can be assured that Christ is in you. So the question becomes, is Christ in you? And then is Christ working through you? Do you see yourself as a dartboard 
where life is just coming at you with great fury and you're just tired of getting hit by all the darts? Or do you see yourself as a pipeline? That even in the midst of your struggling, true life is flowing in you and true life is flowing through you. That even if, even if we're, our vessels are cut, we're pouring out something useful and something good uh, for others for the sake of his glory. Do we see this? Do we desire this? Do we want this? I'm going to ask you to stand this morning, and we're going to enter into a time of invitation and consecration. And let's, let's pray together. Father, we need you. We desire you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the mystery of Christ in us. Lord, just finish this time today. I pray if anyone in this room doesn't know you today, that today would be the day of salvation for them. I pray for that child of God who's trying to live the Christian life apart from Christ in them. Today, you would help them like never before to submit themselves to Christ in them. To your word, O oh God, to your spirit. Lord, finish this time. Do a work in us and through us, God, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.